everybody. Welcome into the Cubs Weekly Podcast presented by Wintrust, proud legacy partner of the Chicago Cubs and exclusive home of Cubs Check-In. Open online today at Wintrust.com slash Cubs Weekly. Tony Andraki here, joined by Andy Martinez and special guest Ryan Dempster. Dem, thanks for joining us here. Yeah, thank, I didn't even know this place existed. This is great. Yeah, it's like hidden in have, the corner, too. It is, and we have the old Vine line. If you're watching the video feed, uh, we have Ryan Dempster here in a fireman jacket, firefighter. We have a Derek Lee Vine line in here, too. So we dug up some of our great Cubs artifacts from history here. Thanks. So, yeah, no, we that appreciate it. That was a fun one, the, that shoot right there, because my dad was a fire chief, my brother, firefighter. My other brother was a volunteer firefighter. And after that came out, they said, Ryan, you know, you should only put that on if you're a firefighter. <laughs> so you got in trouble a little bit. I got, yeah. yeah. I'm like the black sheep of the family. <laughs> yeah. By having a very successful major league career, winning yeah. the Red Series, all that. Yeah. They were like, hey, great game, but did you ever really save a life? <laughs> yeah, you know? exactly. So, That's yeah. fair point. <laughs> well, actually, that does kind of lead us into our first question. So we know, you know, growing up in Canada, like, what drew you to baseball initially and when did you think, hey, I can make a career out of this and, and I want to make a career out of this? Yeah, I think what initially kind of drew me was a combination of things. Um, my papa, my dad's dad, was a big baseball fan. Um, and then my parents played slow pitch softball. Um, they were young and, you know, they're playing these slow pitch leagues and I'm a little kid and it's like, oh, we need the rover, so give him a glove. And I just you know, would chase down balls because they didn't want to put their beer back down to go run after it. So I, I did all that. And then it was like throw the ball in. And then I just loved baseball. And, you know, growing up in Canada, like you said, but where we grew up, we didn't get much snow. Maybe in the wintertime we got a little bit of snow. So the weather surprisingly wasn't bad. So you could always be outside playing and playing baseball. And, yeah, just kind of, I mean, I, I've wanted to do it since I was four. It's in my baby book. Like what I want to be when I grew up, four years old, professional baseball player. That's awesome. It's pretty crazy, yeah. What was that moment like for you then, like when you actually become a, you know, that what that little kid wanted to do, he's finally done it. Yeah, I think, you know, it came in stages, right? It was like get drafted, which was amazing. And then, um, and then get, you know, sign a contract and go start playing professional baseball. And then to get to, you know, double A and get that call. I'm in Binghamton, New York, walking in the field and supposed to start that day. And then I get call up the big leagues and find out I'm going first person my mom and dad you know like hey it's happening like this is really happening so um yeah really surreal I was pretty driven so along the whole process I wasn't like if I get there in my head I'm like yeah well cool I'm gonna play 20 years so um it was but it was it was amazing man really really special and then throughout the course of your career I know you had so many Cubs teammates and we just mentioned Derek Lee as one of them as you were coming in the room you said my guy like what was it like to be teammates with him, obviously coming up as rookies together in Florida, but then playing for years here in Chicago. Like, what was it about him, one that stood out as a teammate? We've heard all these great stories from you and other people about Derek as a teammate, but just in general, like, what was that bond like with him? Yeah, like, you know, it really was, it is a bond still to this day. Um, you know, when you come up to the big leagues together, you're automatically, as a bunch of young kids, you're like, drawn to each other because you're all in the same boat you know you're not free agents coming from different places you're doing it together you're trying to like make your way um and d was always so even keeled it was like he had this just great persona of he probably la like so many times he just laughed at me like look at this idiot coming in the clubhouse and the speedo and flip <laughs> flippers on and a mask you know like so i was jumping in the pool or whatever it was and he but he always just like accepted me and he was just really great and then you know i come here as a free agent then he comes here via the trade um, at the same time. So we're here together, you know, at the same time. And we, we played 12 seasons together. 
um, which is pretty amazing. And then, um, yeah, he's just, he's such a good leader. Um, and, and I was actually t- talking about some guys with this the other day. Like, he never, like, made you feel uncomfortable even in his most uncomfortable times. So, like, if you're in the dugout and something bad happened to him, like, you struggle with the bases loaded. He wasn't smashing helmets. He wasn't making you feel tense. Instead, he, he was doing the opposite. He was disarming you. So, like, if he ever did get mad, instead of ever being like, oh, you know, I better watch out. D's mad. Instead, it's like he had this force of guys behind him. If it was an umpire, yeah, we're all going to get thrown out or something, you know. Um, if it was a play, but he was just always always ready. I think one of my favorite D. Lee stories, and he's so good about this, superstars, you know, when, when things go on, like throughout a course of a season, if they're late for you can find them all you want. Not that D was getting fined. You know, you can you can find the money. They can write a check. That's cool. When you're elite like he is, the one thing that you can take away from a guy that drives him nuts more than anything else is playing time. Mm-hmm. And I always loved it when I'd come to the field, and I usually would get there before Derek, and I'd and if I'd see his name wasn't in the lineup on the lineup card. I'd sit there and wait for him to come in the doors, and I'd be like, here he comes. And he'd see him because he'd always – this is before now they tell guys like a week yeah, ahead of time when right. you're playing. You know, but he'd walk in, and you'd just see him, and he'd go down, and he'd be like, look at it really funny. Like, huh? <laughs> oh, okay. To his locker, not get dressed, straight upstairs to the office. Come downstairs, then you'd see a clubhouse guy run over to the lineup card. The lineup card would go back upstairs, <laughs> and then a new lineup card would go up. D. Lee was like, I'm playing every day. I will let you know when I need a day off, and he never wanted one. And yeah, he was just like, when you have somebody like that, that wants to be in there like that every day, like you just fall in love with them. And then like on a personal level, and yeah. his wife and kids, and I, you know, he's just a great man. To that point, I mean, you said twelve seasons. One specifically, that 05 season, where I mean, he was. You, you mentioned elite, but I think he was beyond that. What was it like seeing that 2005 season from your vantage point and being being with him that year? Yeah, you know, it, it was like, and for me, I was watching this kind of maturation take place where D came up and then he started to be a really good player, and then they win the World Series in 03, and then he comes here, he has a good year in 04, and all of a sudden, spring training, he's having a good spring, decent spring, and then he just gets off to this unbelievable start. You know, like we're talking, people are talking about, is he going to hit 400? Like, I mean, it was, you know, he, he was just murdering the baseball, extra base hits, he's hitting doubles off the wall every game, and it's like, two for four, two for four, one for three. Like, he was just as dangerous as they came. And, you know, he was so locked in, so balanced at the plate and complete and total control of himself. And, you know, from a fan, I was geeking out and loving it. But as a friend, I was just in admiration of what he was doing because, you know, he won the batting title. He was, you know, my mind, he should have been the MVP. Agree. You know, like the things he was doing out on the field, and all the while too, playing great defense, being a you know a model human being, and everything he was doing, it was just like I, I was satisfied satisfied for him because I felt like everybody really saw what maybe I or other guys had been seeing his whole career, and it's just like coming to this like apex of like oh man, this dude's like he's as bad as there is in the league right now, and it was really really fun to watch. One of the other guys you got to play with that many Cubs fans obviously know is Greg Maddox. And uh, we've always heard a lot of stories from people, the pranks you would pull or the jokes or whatever. Do you have a favorite Greg Maddox story from your time with him or even even apart? You know, obviously he's such a big figure, you know, and you were here for so long. What's your favorite Maddox story? Wow. Yeah. Um, you know, a lot. Like you mentioned it. He was a kind of a jack of all trades. Like obviously, I don't know. Yeah. I would say top five pitcher that's ever pitched. Yeah. 
Um, and then, so there's what he did on the field and how he went about it. Like, you know, I remember Larry Rothschild, we were in Milwaukee and, and there was runners on second and third, one out, uh, I'm sorry, two out. Russell Brandon was up, left-handed power hitter for the Brewers. Pitcher was on deck, open base, first base, and Larry goes up to the mound. And they're having this conversation. Larry, you know, was always very serious. He was just like, you know, stoic. The game's going on. And he came back to the dugout with this chuckle on his face. And I'm like, why are you laughing? You know, I, and he goes, well, I just went out there and asked him, what do you want to do with this guy? Do you want to put him on first base? And I remember Greg kind of looking over his shoulder and looking at the on-deck circle, like looking, oh, and Russell Brandy. He goes, nah, I'm going to throw him a cutter in off the plate, and then I'm just going to throw him nothing but change-ups. He's either going to walk or he'll swing and miss, and I'll strike him out. <laughs> And as he's walking off, he looks at Larry, he goes, but I bet he doesn't walk. And he goes out there, cut her in, and then change up, change up, three swings and misses in a row. And wow. it was like, he called exactly what he was going to do. He did it, and he just had the, you know, the kind of the general overall self-confidence to say, I bet he doesn't walk, <laughs> you know? Like, he did stuff like that throughout the game. And then you talk about the prankster. I mean, you know, it was, there was a lot of different things. Like, you, know, you, you did not leave a sandwich on the table <laughs> and then go get, like, a drink. Because if you left it there, you know there might be something else inside the sandwich. There might be a bite taken out of it. You know, it might just be two pieces. Like he'd walk up, take the bread off, take all the things out, put the bread back on, and then just keep walking. <laughs> like he was just always just like these little creative ways of just messing with guys. Um, and he was a lot of fun. Best poker player I played with on the plane. Um, you know, incredibly smart. Um, yeah, he always liked to play the fart game. Yeah, it was really fun when he was charting pitches. So you, if you had to if you had to let gas go, yeah. you could run up to the clubhouse and you let one out and then you'd mark it. You'd have a score total at the end of the whole <laughs> match. So it That's was like, incredible. yeah, I mean, you know, the things Hall of Famers do. Yeah, uh, yeah. I guess you got to keep yourself entertained between starts somehow, right? Yeah, so. that's a, and that's it, you know. And yeah. he was, he, you know, you talk about te teammates. Like as far as pitchers go, hands down, not a pitcher was as good of a teammate as he was because he was always in the dugout. Always on the bench. If he went and got a cup of coffee, it was in between innings and he was back out on the bench. The only time he wasn't on the bench was when he was inside charting pitches. That's it. You know, it was like, and so now guys want to play for him because if you're a hitter and you strike out and the guy's there, hey man, you got him next time. If you're there and you make a great play and he's high-fiving you, you just instinctively, subconsciously just start to play hard for guys like that because they're always in your corner. And he was always on the bench no matter what. And he felt like there was a lot to learn out there and he, he was right. How beneficial was that, that you knew, like, hey, if I have a question about X, Y, or Z when I'm on the mound or whatever about a guy I'm facing, I can go up to this guy and he's going to treat me and help me out. Yeah, he was really great. I, you know, we, we bonded early on. We played against each other with Marlins Braves for a long time. But uh, in spring training of 04, we played a ton of golf together. And, um, and so then I felt comfortable always asking those questions. And for me, 04, I was, I was hurt most of the year coming off Tommy John. So... It was a way to almost like, you know, I'm going to get a degree in pitching here and just and listen to him. And, and it, it's real, right? Like pre-Maddox, post-Maddox being teammates. I'm like a three-quarters of a run lower ERA just from being his teammate. Things he would find during the game, things he would watch. Watch this guy and this guy. Ask him questions. Should I throw a guy a fastball in? He's like, no, he hasn't stopped swinging at your slider until he swings, stops swinging at that. Not once, not twice, three times in a row. Then you can go in there. Like 
just a lot of different things and he was just really good at that. It was there if you wanted it and if you didn't want it, that's fine too. And So via research, uh, Kyle, who's back there, uh, found that your Cubs debut actually was the same day that Nomar, Garcia Parra's Cubs debut was after the trade, yeah. August 1st, 2004. I didn't know that at the time. I know obviously that was your first year with the Cubs, but what was it like playing with Nomar and then also just seeing the buzz? Like that was one of the more buzzworthy trades in Cubs history, you know, just like everybody's so excited, that, you know, that Nomar's coming here and what it means for the team and the Red Sox obviously go on and win the World Series that year but just like what was it like being teammates with him and seeing that buzz after the trade? Yeah it, it was man there was a lot of energy behind that because our team in 04 up to that point we were still we were right there and playing well and and, and had a shot and it was it was a you know designed to be a difference maker um, and the energy around the field and like all of a sudden everybody in Chicago had a Boston accent you know, they're all no ma, no ma, like just all over the place, and and uh, and he did. He was a superstar, so he brought like a little bit. And well, on a team that already had superstars, brought it even more. And um, yeah, it was fun. He was great, man. We had a great relationship. He was great with me. I, I admired his dedication to how like hard he worked and the things he put in to go out there and play. Unfortunately, got hurt and stuff like that. But um, very superstitious. All the batting glove stuff was just like. That was like the 14th thing he did that was superstitious yeah. that day, you know. I remember he'd always walk up the stairs one, like one foot, one foot, one foot, one foot, one foot, one foot. And like after like day four, I go, hey, dude, if there's a fire in the hotel, <laughs> I get to go before you. You got it? Yeah. I'm going down before you. I'm not waiting for you to go up all these stairs. But like he was just great. And, you know, that was that team was fun, man. I really wish that we would have had a shot to get in the playoffs because that team, you know, from the starting pitching standpoint and then what we had offensively, um, you know, we just didn't get it done, but that, that was a fun time. I have a two-parted question. First of all, when there's a uh, bench-clearing brawl, what is your strategy when that goes on? Get in the middle of it. Oh, yeah? Yeah, it's the Canadian hockey player mentality. <laughs> you know, it's like... Um, no, I think the initial mentality is let's, let's break it up, right? Like save my teammate, whoever's on the bottom of the pile. Let's try and save that guy. Okay, so then going off of that, 2003... Cincinnati Reds, Kyle Farnsworth, that mound charging. What's going through your head? What was you know? Give us a little play-by-play on that. Yeah, that was really save a team. <laughs> yeah, because he he decided it was a good idea to start yelling at Farnsy, and that's never a good idea. So you know, I was with the Reds at the time, and um, he pipes he pipes off like the whole, and it, and that had stemmed by the way that whole people were like why did that brawl happen? But the reality was was uh, that. Um, there was some interaction going on between LaRue and Pryor earlier because oh, LaRue okay. was wearing Pryor out as far as roping him all over the ballpark. So then Pryor, I think he might have hit him or buzzed his tower. So now later on in the game, Paul Wilson comes up the bunt and here's this pitch up by his head. And then, you know, like he's yelling at Farnsworth and Farnsy tackles him. And so we all go out there, you know, and Farnsy's got him in like a bow constrictor headlock. He can't get him off him. You know, I think Willie's eyes are rolling back in his head. And all of a sudden, I just feel this like, huge arm around my neck and I'm like now I can't breathe right so now I'm like all right somebody help my teammate I got to get out of here and I kind of push out and it's dusty you know and he's like get off the pile with a few other words in there you know like he was just like you know like this ain't your fight get off the pile and he was just like there for his guys he was coming in so yeah that was crazy and then we're on the bus afterwards you know and we're taking the airport me him Kent Merker and Gabe White are sitting at the back of the bus and Danny Graves and a few guys and he's got like cut on his nose he's got a cut on his eyes got gauze up his nose this is, he, this is paul wilson yeah. he won't stop bleeding you know and he's like 
hey, did I get any punches in? <laughs> and we're like, no, no, you didn't get any, man. But you got a lot of respect from all of us, you know? And he's like, ah, oh, what an idiot. You sure I didn't get any punches in? <laughs> you know, like, face looked like he'd been in a beehive. It was pretty funny. So, yeah, great lessons there. Don't charge Kyle Farnsworth. Yeah, I, especially now. I don't know yeah. if you've yeah, seen photos of him now. But I saw some today. Yeah, really? Yeah, I guess he's in cut mode, you know? It's like where you get rid of your sugar. And, yeah. yeah. He's... He's like physically a dominant human being. Absolutely, yes. Yeah. I wouldn't have charged him back then. I definitely yeah. wouldn't charge him now. Yeah. But uh, I'm glad you brought up Dusty too. You know, obviously playing for Dusty and then Lou Pinella here in Chicago. What were some of the similarities or some of the differences between how these like iconic managers went about their business and, and dealt with you guys as players? Yeah, I think similarities were just like how intelligent they were about the game of baseball. You know, they, they knew a lot about the game and what it – took to win games and um you know what it took from like a human standpoint you know i think sometimes i would say dusty had a little bit more compassion you know there's a little bit more of a personal touch but lou had that as well i mean it's, you know he was unbelievable with like you know the foundation i had and my family and things you were going through personally um but like for him he wore the winning and losing on his sleeve a little bit more you know, dusty's a little bit more chill uh, so, but it was lucky, you know, I went from Dusty to Lou. So it was like both guys didn't overcoach you. They just be ready, be prepared, you know, and, and let you do your thing. And I think that was, you know, they appreciated that. They appreciated, like, if you worked hard, you got a, you got a bigger leash. If they saw you working, I mean, like Lou putting me back in the rotation in 08, I remember running into him at the mall and Camelback there. And I just come off the mountain, run, run in the mountain. And like one start during the start, I said I was fine. I want to go back over the eighth inning. He goes, hey, Larry, of course he's fine. Dude runs Camelback Mountain. He's not tired. You know, like he was he was totally appreciated that. He knew how hard I was working. So, yeah, I, I'm, I'm thankful for both of those guys. Dusty and him both gave me great opportunities. And let me let me be me. Kind of off that, what was it like when Dusty's, you know, obviously we know he won the World Series as a manager finally, but yeah. seeing him get that mob that they showed right after the final out, seeing him, everyone, not high-fiving each other, but surrounding him, what was it like to see that moment for, for Dusty? Yeah, well, it was special because I guarantee you if you talk to all of those guys, like they would all say like it meant something more to them because of him. You know, like he was hired at like a really, you know, tough time for them as a as an organization all the the sign stealing stuff and he came in there with that attitude and he just he just continued to win like he always does and so when they win you see all these coaches all these people who it, it's like uh now your relief for him of going finally you get your due because like he's a hall of fame manager he's got over 2,000 wins and the only thing he was missing on the resume was a world series championship so for him to get that as a manager cements his place in Cooperstown and like you know so many times throughout a season like you're always happy for yourself when you do great but when you have great teammates or great friends and things like that and they have moments in a game or a huge season like we were talking about with D. Lee it feels better almost than it does for yourself because it's like that's somebody you really care about and they obviously care a ton about him. And you get to be a fan and watch some of it too, yeah. right? Especially like Derek Lee, two thousand five. Like I watched it as a fan, but I can only imagine being you and watching this all happen from the bullpen and stuff throughout that year. That must have been amazing. So. Oh man, yeah, and just like it was just it was like in a sense, you know, uh, being on a basketball team with a guy who's 
dropping 30 every night, yeah. you know, and like when the game's on the line, clutch hit, here we go. You know, like I remember a home run he hit off Mike Piazza. I'm sorry, not off Mike Piazza. Mike Piazza hit me with a line drive in my f- right forearm uh, through two innings. It was my first ever save opportunity as the quote unquote closer. Wind was blowing in a million miles an hour, and D. Lee cut the wind for the home run. Like, that's how good he was going that year that nobody was hitting a ball out that day. And D. Lee hit a walk off. Like, it was just like so much fun to watch. And when it's a good guy like that and somebody that everybody feels the same way about it's like this like extra little bit of yeah like sometimes some guys you know like whatever they're teammates yeah like hey cool good game you know i'm happy we won instead of i'm happy for you you know all right we're going to take a quick break here and when we get back we're going to hear more from ryan dempster get your win trust exclusive debit card get your cubs card Ooh, i'll take one how much actually they pay you three hundred dollars you heard right. Get a $300 bonus when you open a Cubs checking account with Wintrust. Enjoy all perks and purchase with pride every time with your Wintrust Cubs debit card. $300? Get your exclusive card at Wintrust.com slash Cubs. Only $100 required to open. No monthly minimum balance and no monthly maintenance fees. Member FDIC and equal housing lender. It, you talked a little bit about it, like closing and obviously being back in the rotation too. If you had the choice, packed house at Wrigley either way, would you rather be getting the final three outs, everybody on their feet, or taking the ball and knowing that you have the chance to go nine or go seven? Like, which did you like or thrive in better, do you think? Yeah, I'll take the start and still get the last three outs. That'd okay. be awesome. <laughs> yeah, that, that's, yeah. that's a great workaround, yeah. That is, a, that is a pretty fun thing to do. I didn't do it a ton in my career, but um, I did it a few times. Yeah, like... I really took pride in every fifth day, like my whole life until I started, came, until I came back from Tommy John was starter. So that's what I knew. Um, and I love that. There's nothing better than like being the one in charge out there and, you know, kind of leading the ship. Cause you, you are right. Like there's no, well, there was no pitch clock. So, you know, I did nothing happen until you threw the ball, but there, there is, it's a tough job and it's a thankless job, but there is nothing like those last three outs at Wrigley with 40,000 on their feet going crazy Saturday afternoon. You know, knowing you lock that down, you're going to go have a nice cold one afterwards. It's, it's pretty awesome. Kind of off that, what was the most memorable moment you've had in a Cubs uniform? Obviously, you touched on starting as, as a starter, but like, was there one that sticks out? Um, yeah, it's a good question. I, I would say, honestly, probably the 2008 all-star game you know um was probably i I would like to say you know some of the playoffs but we didn't go deep so they don't you know getting bounced you got like these sour memories like give up a grand slam to james loney that i still dread to this day how did he foul that pitch off you know but the one before it um yeah, I would say probably that that probably was like the coolest moment. Like at Yank, old Yankee Stadium, I got eight teammates, you know, all of us there, with including Lou, and um, to go out there in the bottom of the ninth inning in a tie game and strike out the side was was pretty awesome. Our stat researcher Kyle he said that minimum three batters faced, you have the highest strikeout percentage in an All Star game. Yeah, so that's pretty pretty. Uh, I think it was the first time company. since 1955 that it had been done. Really? Ninth inning or later, yeah. There was a lot of I, and the the crazy part about all that is that l- both Lou and Clint Hurdle told me I would not pitch in the All Star game for two straight days, and I begged and pleaded. I went in that office. I went into Clint Hurdle's office four times. 
Because I went to the All-Star game in 2000 and I didn't pitch. Do you think at that point they were just, uh, you know, after like the second or third time that you go in, they're kind of messing with you? Or like, no. Higher than you, or they were serious? Oh, they were dead serious, yeah. I pitched out of necessity, you know, yeah. like, because it was now a tie game. Yeah. And I was using the, the, the men's room and uh, Billy Wagner just giving up a home run to J.D. Drew. And it was a tie game. And uh, bang, 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 bang on the door. Hey, going into the top of the ninth. Hey, Demp, if it's still tied in the ninth, you're in. Huh? <laughs> what? <laughs> What's he talking about? You know, like, yeah. and uh, I didn't throw, Soto was warming me up. I didn't throw a strike warming up. I was so bad. I didn't, they told me I wasn't pitching, so yeah. I, like, really hadn't played catch. Right. And, uh, and so then I was awful, and he'd come, he started the game, and he'd come down to help out in the bullpen. And then he stopped halfway through, and he came out to the mound. He's like, you Okay. I go, yeah, why? He goes, because you haven't thrown a strike. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, I'm, I'll be all right. And I remember when the doors swung open, I thought, man, I just I just lost the All-Star game. And then I said, come on, Auntie Doris, I need you. My aunt, my great aunt, had passed away a couple years before that. And uh, she was a huge Yankee fan. So much that when I started my second game of my career um, at Yankee Stadium, she was rooting for the Yankees. Oh, my god! Oh, gosh. yeah, diehard, yeah. Like, wow. She's just like... But my dad had taken her ashes and spread them across center field during batting practice. So he'd went out there with like a little vial, like a pill container, and just spread them. So I literally, as I walked over there. At the All-Star track, game that day? No. Or, oh. uh, the year before, we went gotcha. there in 07 in Interleague. He'd done that. And so then when I was going across the morning track, I just said, come on, it's Doris. I need you right here. Yeah. She was crazy. there? She got me, yeah. Do you awesome. remember the hitters? She said, she probably said none of them are Yankees. So that's, probably <laughs> that's probably true, yeah. It was, it was, uh, um, Ian Kinzer, Deonor Navarro, and uh, J.D. Drew. Okay. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned 07 or 08, like the playoff run. I mean, can you kind of take us behind that a little bit, just what it was like to be on the team, to be in the clubhouse? And obviously it didn't end the way you or the rest of the team or even Cubs fans would have liked, but just like 08, you know, best team in the league, like wire wire essentially, and 07 obviously getting in there. Like, can you take us just behind like making the playoffs back-to-back years and what that was like? And then, you know, maybe even just a little bit of the disappointment that you guys felt afterwards and, and the hunger to, to get there someday. Yeah, you know, like it, it really was, and it took a little bit, right? Like 07, Soriano signs, DeRosa comes over, Marquis, Jason Marquis, Ted Lilly, um, you know, some of the other core guys um, that were there um, were still there. And so there was, there was a lot of expectation, which was fine, but we were all still kind of trying to get to know each other a little bit, right? Like you're not instantly when you, when you come together like that, it's hard. You got to try and find relationships and what works for you. And we were, we were doing okay. We were doing great. And then that's when Lou went off on Mark Wagner at third base, you know, kicking dirt on him and throwing the hat. And it really did kind of spark us in a way. I think it was just like, uh, okay, enough messing around. Like, we're wasting really good talent here by not dominating teams. And then we just started to go on a tear. Um, and then, of course, um, clinching and, uh, you know, struggling. That You know, that year I was a little worried because we, we limped to the finish line. Like, we went to Miami. We got swept by the Marlins. I'll never forget that. Bill Murray was at that, that series that weekend. You know, here we were getting ready to clinch. And all we need to do is win one game. And I'm closing. And uh, the night before, we got back for after the game. We're at the hotel bar there for a second. And I, I run into Bill and his brother, and we're just talking. And the next day, I come in, and they, Lou brought me in the uh, bottom of the eighth inning, and we were up by one run. 
runner on third base. I think Cody Ross was up. And he brings brings me in, and uh, I come set, you know, like like I'm getting ready. I got a runner on first and third or third or second and third, something like that. I know I had a runner on third because it's sack fly ties the game. And I, like, come set, you know, and I'm like, and I go to check the runner, and right behind the runner is Bill Murray. And he's just going like this, you know. And I was like, stepped off. I go, well, gosh, man, this is freaking me out right now. Bill Murray's over. Bill, what are you doing? Sit down, you know. Like, kind of threw me for a loop. So then I, get, I think I give up a sack fly. They tied the game. Might have been a hit, but I think it was a sack fly. And then they tied the game. We ended up losing the game. And then we went to Cincinnati and clinched there. And, and so, and then, you know, we didn't obviously go any farther than that. And then 08, it was like, all right. Now we got like Jim Edmonds, we got Bob Howry and Scott Ayer. We got like, we loaded up, you know, like this team stacked. And we were, man, we, we, we just waxed people. Like, you know, the Colorado game where we're down 8-1 and we come back and win the game. And it's just like one after another after another. And we were just unstoppable. Like, and then, you know, a combination of, I think we, when we clinched that fine line between how much do I rest, how much do I let guys keep playing? And then we ran into a hot Dodger team. And that, that's the reality, right? Like, we see it this year. Look at the Dodgers this year. 111 wins during the season and then get bounced. You, when you run into a hot team at the wrong time and those Dodger pitchers, Billingsley and Derek Lowe and Kuroda all dealt. And, you know, Manny was trying to get pregnant. So, uh, you know, he was hitting everything this side of the moon and yeah. couldn't get him out. And, um, you know, there was a lot going on. Yeah. Jason Hayward mentioned in his, you know, final press conference the, about the curse of the Billy Goat and – you know, how they joked about it in 16, that, you know, they didn't care about the Billy Goat. Was that something that you guys talked about? Like, did it come up? Did you, did, was, was that ever a conversation? Yeah, I think a little bit. We didn't openly talk about it as much as the team did in 16 because I think sometimes that's a good thing. It's like, you know, the elephant in the room right. or the goat in the room. Yeah. yeah. You know, that's, yeah. it was like, it was almost like a denial. Like, oh, yeah, forget that, screw that. You know, there's no... There's no curse, you know, instead of being like, yeah, cool. Like, we're eating goat afterwards. Like, yeah. that's kind of how they were. And uh, and I think, you know, that that played a big difference. I think there was always just this little bit, right? Like this, you know, after the Grand Slam in in, 20, in 2008 that Loney hit, it was like you could hear a pin drop in that place afterwards. And it was a 4-2 game. It wasn't like uh, the game, in the fifth. It was like you could feel it from the fans, whereas I think, you know, going through that maybe in 2016 – I think the 15 season helped going into 2016 because you beat the Cardinals. You finally get past that first round again, and then, you know, when the even when the Roger Davis home run happened, it was sure the pin drop. But then all of a sudden, it was like, okay, here we go, let's go. And everybody, instead of thinking bad things, we're thinking good things. And when you collectively have team, the team, coaches, players, managers, all that stuff, the front office, and then the fans, that energy is real. So if you channel that energy and bring it out in like a positive way, the players feel it, and they felt that love of, the, of all the fans in Cleveland that night, and were able to overcome that. What was your perspective for not only Game Seven, but like just that whole fall of '16, and and like what emotions were going through you watching it? Because obviously happiness and joy, and, and knowing those guys and your personal relationships, but you know anything else too? The fact that like hey, this does kind of stink that I wasn't part of the team that, that finally ended this championship drought. Like, how much of that did you experience, and how much did you kind of think through that just the entire fall? Yeah, 2016 was a, an interesting year for me. I, I kind of felt like I was on, like, the 60-day DL with no chance at a rehab assignment. Yeah. You know, like, that's how the guys treated me. I was around a lot in the locker room, a lot. Um, you know, plane rides, 
all those kind of things being around them. Um, and so I didn't have, I, I wasn't envious of like what they were having. I was actually like really, really proud of them because I knew through what we were, we went through in those years and what I did as a player on the North side, like, for, you know, nine seasons to try and be a part of winning and bringing that, I knew what that feeling was like. So to see them figuring out ways to overcome that, you know, the comeback in San Francisco and then what they did to the Dodgers. And, and then I remember walking up um, Waveland from my place um, and then picking up Theo on the way. We were walking over together and like no talk down three games to one, like completely confident. Like, oh, just as long as we win tonight, we're good. And it was like, and we, who do we got going? John Lester. Like, we're winning tonight, you know? And it was just this really cool feeling of just, like, this is going to happen. Um, especially after game six. Like, when, when, you know, they went out there and thumped them in Cleveland in game six. It's like, oh, okay, here we go. Start planning a parade, an after party, and lack of sleep for a few days. Like, so, yeah, it was just, I got to watch it from the outside, yet still super, like, I just retired three years earlier. I played with you know, Lester and Lackey and Rossi in Boston. I'd played with Travis Wood and Rizzo here and I'd been around these guys. So it was like, there was a lot of personal attachment and I was close enough where I was, I was feeling some of the same emotions they were feeling, but able to just appreciate and, and understand what they were going through and just watching everything they took on. You know, it, it's pretty amazing what, what they went through, you know, to be able to, to do all that and win. And um, yeah, pretty special. Another guy you have a connection with from that 16 team, Kyle Hendricks, obviously the trade. What was it like seeing him have this, the career he's had, have, you know, started game seven. What's been your relationship with him and, and, you know, how special is it to kind of be tied to, to that for forever? Yeah. I mean, no, it's great. You know, um, I think more important than obviously what he did on a field, just like when you get traded for somebody and they are the type of person that he is, it's like really, really means a lot. Um, but then to know that like they trade away me and all I ever wanted to do is win a World Series here and the guy that they trade, you know, two guys, but he ends up being the guy starting game seven of the World Series and pitched unbelievable in game seven and the whole year and what he did and start the game that sends him to the World Series. It was it was magical, you know, like a serious attachment and and, and then our bond and our friendship and conversations that we have throughout the years and it's just been, uh, I'm so happy for him and, you know, because he's a huge part of that success, you know, and and in a, in a weird way, it's like all those times sitting in the office while they're asking me all these trades, will you go here, will you go here, will you go here? You know, I don't, it's like fate or some sort of weird way. It's like you could have said yes here or you could have said yes here, but you say yes here and that leads to that. It's like you are a part of it in some sort of weird universe, you know, that if you said something else, maybe that doesn't happen. So, um, yeah, it was, it's really cool. And, you know, I, uh, yeah, you're welcome. You're welcome, Cubs <laughs> fans. Yeah. Uh, well, that's a perfect way to end it for multiple reasons, but um, thank you so much. We really appreciate the story time and, and your insight on your career and just everything else since. So we really appreciate you stopping by. Yeah, thanks for having me. No problem. Uh, that'll do it for this week's edition of the Cubs Weekly Podcast. Again, we are presented by Wintrust. Don't forget to download and subscribe to the pod on Spotify or Apple Podcasts and check us out in video form on the Marquee Sports Network app and YouTube. For Demp and Andy, I'm Tony. Thanks for watching and listening.